This Week at Hope Point. The reason that we don't fall away from the faith is because God in His mercy does not allow suffering to come into our life that will cause us to abandon Him. He protects us even in the amount of suffering that comes. Some can handle a lot, some cannot. And he says, I will determine the 10 days of suffering. I will determine what you can and cannot bear so that you will not fall away from me. How merciful is that? I think it's safe to say that most people view the book of Revelation as one of the most difficult books of the Bible, when in fact, it may be one of the easier parts of scripture to understand. Even though the book makes use of symbols and language that can be quite mysterious, its main message is clear. The world is exceedingly hard, but Jesus is exceedingly worth it. He is the creator, savior, and ruler of the world. We live in volatile times in which evil is rampant. But for those who follow Christ, He will lead them to endless joy in the paradise of heaven. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 2. If you're new to Hope Point, there's there's a season uh, that we are in right now in studying the book of Revelation, and there's a reason for that is we believe that the last book of the Bible, which is given to the church to understand the end of times, is more important now in this day and age than ever. You might ask me, do I think that we are at the end of history? And, and, and that's something I can't say yes or no to at all, but I can say yes to this. I do know that for many people around the globe today, they are at the end of their history. We had a privilege a couple years ago of... Um, of going to, I'm not sure my clicker was going to work today. Somebody can advance that slide. If, here we go. Traveling to Asia with three of us from a team. And we spent a couple weeks with some American missionaries and four nationals, four young men. We learned so much about Jesus Christ from them. We've been on a common text thread with them for two years. David Sullivan has sort of headed that up. And... Uh, this week, we got a, a word about this young man on the far, on the far right in the tan shirt. <clears throat> Precious boy, 26 years old, encountered difficulty with disease and didn't make it at age 26. And we really struggled with losing him. Not only was he kind, but he was so courageous in his devotion to bring Jesus Christ and introduce Muslims to Jesus Christ without fear. There's going to be a big void in that ministry and that that church because of of his loss. So whether you're 26 like Noel or you're 86 like Polycarp that we'll see at the end of the sermon, it is the end of history for some people every day. And what I really want to say is that as history increases, volatility in the world increases. And therefore, the need for unshakable hope increases. And Revelation teaches us that the world is exceedingly hard, but Jesus is exceedingly worth it. And that's why we're in the book of Revelation, because I want to ask you, do you have a hope that is so confident that when loss and pain and suffering and rejection come your way, you will still say, I want the Lord. The world we live in is not nearly as volatile as the world of the first century this is one of seven churches that Jesus Christ addressed in the book of Revelation. We're in church number two this week. Let's read it together. His letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Write, 
These are the words of him who's the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Again, if this is your first Sunday, I've told you when we started this that the Apostle John received a vision from Jesus Christ in heaven writing to seven churches that are in a portion of the world called Asia Minor. And you say, well, where is that? Sometimes that's a stumbling block just to listen to a message like this. Well, obviously on the left side, you see this map is a map in my office, North and South America on the left. And then you got Africa and Europe and Asia. Then you come down to this area of this landmass that's circled in blue. Primarily that is Asia, all the way from China, Mongolia, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia. That was called Asia. And then over on the far left of the blues, a little red circle of land. Um, and they called it Asia Minor because commercially it was still connected to the large land mass of Asia, even though it didn't quite look like it was in there. So they called it Little Asia. That's what Asia Minor is. And today we call it Turkey. And the seven churches of Revelation are in that part of the world in what is now modern day Turkey. Last week, I also told you to look for a specific pattern when you're reading the seven churches that are in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Jesus begins with a word of empathy. I know you're hurting. Then he compliments them on what they're doing well, rebukes them for areas that need to be corrected, gives them a warning and a promise based on their their repentance. Well, as with every rule there is in life, there's an exception because today we're going to look at the exception to what I just said because this church gets no rebuke and no warning. The reason why there was no rebuke for this church is that the false believers had already been driven out by suffering. When faithfulness becomes the call of the church, Those who do not really belong to the Lord will leave. False Christians will not follow Christ if pain and sacrifice are involved. The American church is filled with many people who want to go to heaven but are not wanting to suffer along the way. We demonstrate our love for Christ by our willingness to suffer for him. So the church of Smyrna didn't have a rebuke because persecution had already driven those who were looking for an easy religion. They had already, it had already driven them out. Now let's look at how Jesus Christ comforted this church. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who's the first and the last who died and came to life again. If you've ever wanted to have a good definition of what it means that God is sovereign, I think you found it in this verse. He's the first and the last. You can picture Jesus Christ, his hands, as the bookends of history. Everything starts with him in history. Everything ends with him. And everything that happens in between, in between his hands is completely co- controlled by the one who is the first and the last, the sovereign Christ. Everything moves because of his power. Everything happens only because of his, his permission. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There is no neutral ground in the universe. 
Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God. This is what Jesus is telling the suffering church in Smyrna. Everything that's happening to you is happening with my knowledge, under my control. You know, you could go to the Columbia Zoo today. You can see all the animals there. and They're free to do anything they want inside the zoo. They can run, they can climb, they can eat, they can sleep, they can growl, they can roar. But the one thing the animals can't do there is leave. Because the zoo is designed that everything happens within the confines of that zoo. And this is the way the world is under the control of God. You have the universe along with 7.3 billion men and women, countless demonic powers, and all sorts of forces forces, geographical forces on this earth. And, every, and about 10 trillion things are happening every second in the world. And all of them are happening within the hands, the first and the last of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you that we often ask the question in between this, the sovereignty of Jesus, why did you allow that to happen? Because these are your hands. You're, you have control. Listen, when this 26-year-old boy died this week in India, we talked about it and said, Of all the people that you would take, one who is so courageous, so committed, so evangelistic, so kind, why would you take him? And we didn't get an answer for that. And this is, this is, the, only, this is the only answer from Revelation. The hands that were nailed to a cross are also the hands that control history. This is why we need the book of Revelation God's sovereignty, the promise of his sovereignty, the bookends of history, it doesn't remove the pain from your suffering. It's not intended to remove pain from your suffering. But the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is intending to tell you there is no other power that's over you but God and his hands. And everything that happens to you happens within the power and the permission of the crucified and now reigning hands of Christ. Another way that Jesus comforts the church of Smyrna is by reminding them of his own victory over death. These are the words of him who's the first and the last who died and came to, came to life again. That's obviously a very comforting phrase if you know in the church of Smyrna that you are likely going to die in that city, that you are loved by a Savior who's already been there. Went into the grave, came out of the grave, and the same will happen to you. Smyrna, interesting city, it sort of had its own resurrection. It was destroyed in 600 B.C. and lay in ruins for three centuries. I mean, that's older than the United States. Ruins. And then all of a sudden, under the reign of Alexander the Great, he decided to give the city new life, which was rare. And today, this is the city of Smyrna. It's called Izmir. It's the second largest city in, in, in Turkey. And I show you the picture only to remind you that if man, the power of man is able to produce from ruins a city this beautiful. Just imagine the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus Christ is preparing for us at the end of history. If man can do this from a heap of ruins, what can God do when he says, I'm going to resurrect the earth and make it? Make it new. Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. It's tropical near mountains. Had one of the finest seaports in the world. 
And now it was back to life again because of Alexander the Great. But that's really not why Jesus said that. Revelation 2.8, these are the words of him who died and came to life again. Smyrna had an interesting exporting business. They exported the, the fragrance that you know, you've heard of it before, called myrrh. It's a beautiful spice that's used in people's homes. But it was often used, primarily used as an embalming fluid. It would prepare the body for burial. And Smyrna had such a patent on myrrh, you couldn't buy it anywhere else. If you wanted to use myrrh, you had to buy it from Smyrna. As a matter of fact, the, the name of the city Smyrna is the word, has, contains the word myrrh. The whole world knew you get your myrrh from Smyrna. So I think about this. Maybe Jesus is headed there with this reminder of his life and his death. You remember when the wise men came to visit Christ when he was born? They presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Where did they buy that from? From the east. They bought it on the way as they traveled through Smyrna. And then when Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, and they took his body off the cross, the book of John describes this beautifully. John 19, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Isn't it great to know that Nicodemus had come to faith in Christ? Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of, of linen. So I think when Jesus Christ talks about being dead and coming to life again, and he's trying to comfort this church that's about to die from persecution, I think the ascended, ruling, reigning, mighty, infinite Christ has a smile come across his face as he thinks about that Sunday morning that changed history when his myrrh-saturated body conquered the grave, got up, and walked out of the tomb. So I think he's telling this city, I've been there. I know what it's like to have died, to have had my body saturated with 75 pounds of myrrh, and to be able to conquer death. I will take care of you, believers of, of Smyrna. I think that may have been part of his message. With most of the seven churches, Jesus also comforts him by saying, I know what you're going through. Not just because he sees it, but look, this is his life, is it not? Jesus was a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. He knows affliction and he knew poverty. What did he own in life? One set of clothes. He told us himself, I don't even own a pillow. No place to lay my head. Never owned a house. Look at you who follow Christ. You have many sets of clothes. You have a nice house. You have a pillow. Your Savior had nothing. So when he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, he does know. And even more so, what it's like to be afflicted. The word affliction comes from a, a Greek word that could not be more intense to describe pressure on one's soul that tends to suffocate hope. People have been through sorts of, all sorts of pain in life where you either can't stop crying or you can't stop thinking and it's suffocating you. This is the type of affliction. This is the type of pressure that this church was 
was under. And so you ask, what would cause that kind of pressure? There were three things that did it. One of them is mentioned right there, their financial pressure. We've all been through that to some degree, but not like this. Why was the church in financial pressure? Well, Smyrna was loyal to Rome. They loved Rome. They were far away from Rome, but they wanted to show loyalty to Rome. In fact, in 195 BC, they built a, a temple to the city of Rome called the Dea Roma. And inside that temple, they put a statue of the emperor Domitian and worshipped him daily. Domitian, of all the ten Caesars that, that persecuted the church, Domitian was the most harsh. And so in Smyrna, if you were a believer, you would go by the Dea Roma and you would see the bust of Caesar Domitian in there. And if you wanted to be a good Smyrna citizen, you would take incense and you would drop it beneath, beneath the statue of the Caesar, proclaiming that he is God and he is Lord. And the Christians wouldn't do that. And everybody in the city knew the Christians would never worship him. And so it cost them dearly. They were kicked out of their trade unions. They couldn't get jobs that had been posted. Oftentimes it was the houses of Christians that were targeted to be ransacked and their property stolen. And then they were thrown into prison, which means they couldn't work for a living. They were so poor. Great financial pressures in believers of Smyrna. As a matter of fact, as we make our way through Revelation, we'll see that in, as we get closer and closer to the end of history, the way that Satan will be able to control culture in Romans 13, uh, Revelation 13 is through financial pressures. It's all over chapter 13 that he will use financial pressures for people to bow and to compromise. It's been that way forever, but will increasingly be that way toward the end of times. How does Jesus comfort poor believers? By telling them that they're not poor. Wild verse. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Only Jesus Christ has the audacity to tell poor Christians that you are rich. That's a big statement to tell a poor guy. You're rich. It's interesting that this church would be called the rich church in Revelation. Because they were the poorest church. And we're going to get to the last church, which is church number seven, church of Laodicea. It was the wealthiest church in Revelation, and it's called the church that was poor. Because all they had in life was money, and they based all of their hope in money. And therefore, they were poor because they missed out on God. Here, these people have no money, and they're the richest because they found Christ. The book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother. This is what he said about poverty. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So why does Jesus Christ with so much confidence tell a poor person you're rich? Because he's the only one who knows as he looks out of the vast expanse of heaven all the rewards and all the satisfactions that he has prepared for those who are going to reign and rule in his kingdom. He knows what you're going to receive forever and ever and ever and that's why he says you're rich. You just don't know how rich you are. 
Jesus did tell a story in Luke chapter 12, a parable about a man who lived for making money in this world, and that was his God. He was a farmer, and he increased his produce so much that when he got to have such a surplus that it would be time to give it away, he said, no, rather than giving it away to the poor, I think I'll just build bigger and bigger and bigger barns and keep more of the stuff for me. I've got more money than I ever have, and I think I'll just build a bigger, buy a better, bigger everything. And this is what, how Jesus said God will respond to that man. Luke 12, 20, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. God called this man a fool, not because he had money, not because he could earn a huge living, not because he even had stuff. God said, you're a fool because you're keeping it all for yourself and you're not rich toward the kingdom of God. You're not rich to the people that I want you to bless with all of your wealth. That's why you're a fool. You have an opportunity to be a blessing and you're, you're not doing it. Jim Elliott moved to Ecuador um, when he was uh, 28 years old. Left Wheaton, studied there, and went down to reach the Haroni Indians in South America. And soon into his journey, as you know, he was martyred. The very Indians, the Alka Indians that he was trying to reach, they speared him and he died in the sand along with other missionaries. And it looked like he had just given up everything. I mean, you move from the United States down to reach an unreached tribe and you leave a wife behind and you, a life of all that's, you know, connected with that, of children, grandchildren and money and house. You leave all that and you go to die. Looks like he lost everything. And I love this journal entry in the most famous of all his journal entries he wrote it on October 28, 1949. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So everything we keep in life, we're going to lose it one day, and everything we send on ahead to be part of the, the Lord's work, we'll see it again in lives that have been changed. So that was the first pressure was their poverty. The second pressure they, they faced was they were being informed on to the government. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's a very interesting phrase. You'll not find that anywhere else in Scripture. Because you know synagogues are... They were pretty cool things in the sense that Jews gathered there instead of going to the temple in Jerusalem, especially after it was destroyed in A.D. 70. There was really no place to gather except the synagogue in the local village. But Jesus doesn't call this a synagogue of God. He said these Jewish men and women belong to a synagogue of Satan. Why do you say that? Well, it's interesting, in Smyrna, 
the Jews had been given favor by the Roman government that they could be the one religion in the city that did not have to worship Caesar. They got a pass. They were a monotheistic people that the Roman government said, listen, we don't want a problem with you. There were many Jews in the Roman Empire. We want to protect the peace of the empire. All we ask is you stay quiet, do your business, make no trouble, and you don't have to say Caesar is God. Well, as the gospel began to spread, and we don't know exactly when the church of Smyrna started, but probably not far after the church of Ephesus started in Acts chapter 19, because Smyrna is only 35 miles north. So probably evangelists came from Ephesus and went to Smyrna. And as they began to lead people to Christ, some of the people who came to Christ were Jews in the synagogue. But now believing that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, which was contrary to the Jewish beliefs, which of course is the reason why the Jews crucified Christ. So you have Jews leaving their fellow Jews because they're saying Christ is Lord. And now these Jews realize that maybe our favor with Rome is in jeopardy because now these Christians are openly declaring that Caesar is not Lord and the Jews from the synagogue turned on them, ratted them out and formed on them. And that's why they were in prison and dying because their fellow countrymen turned on them. And the reason why he calls it a synagogue of Satan is because the word Satan and the Greek word in the Greek language means accuser or slanderer. So the Jews made up all sorts of stories about the Christians. One of the most famous stories was that Christians are cannibals. John chapter 6, Jesus said, if you want to be saved, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We know what that means. Honor, honor the fact that his, he, shed his body, he shed his blood and his body was broken on a cross and we received that by faith into our bodies. There was never any trace of cannibalism in any church. And yet the Jews told the Roman authorities, they eat flesh and drink blood at their worship services. And the Jews were arrested and the Christians were arrested because of that. And then there was the third pressure that the believers felt there. And that was that of imprisonment. Jesus says to them, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. We're grateful for the book of Revelation because it's nice to know that Jesus sees our suffering, is sympathetic to our suffering, and he's so sovereign that he even predicts when it will occur. He said it's coming. He told them. Because Satan was simply permitted, but God was the one making decisions that this would be allowed. Satan was stirring, but God was sovereign. And yet God put boundaries around their suffering. He said, it's only going to last 10 days. And you say, is that a literal 10 days? I have no idea. <laughs> As with many of the numbers in Revelation, I don't really know. All I know is the fact that Jesus would say 10 means that on day 11, it's over. That was the title of my sermon, Grateful for Day 11. Because here's, here's the truth of life. The reason that we don't fall away from the faith is because God in his mercy does not allow suffering to come into our life that will cause us to abandon him. 
He protects us even in the amount of suffering that comes. Some can handle a lot. Some cannot. And he says, I will determine the 10 days of suffering. I will determine what you can and cannot bear so that you will not fall away from me. How merciful is that? That the God who allows our suffering limits our suffering. And I know some of you have suffered greatly since I've been here over the years. But God didn't let you fall away. He still decided what level of suffering, how much you could handle. And he's, he's kept you in the faith. This is a very interesting phrase when Jesus tells him that the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You really need to grasp this if you're going to survive your suffering. That this is what is happening in the world now. Satan puts people under enormous pressures and persecutions in order to test them to prove in his mind they'll not be loyal to God. Does that ring a bell to you when that happened before? The book of Job? Satan came to, Job, to God and said, look at your servant Job. If I cause him to suffer, he will abandon his faith in you. And God said, you may test him. He will not fall away from me. I will keep him. Your tests are not, don't look at them as just earthly, painful, meaningless realities. It, before you were even tested, there was a conversation between God and Satan where Satan is betting you will fall away if this illness comes, this loss. And God said, no. I will keep them. I know how to get my people home. Test them. So the tests that you're enduring are far greater than you think. Far greater. And that's why we, we so much appreciate the book of Revelation to tell us that, that God is in control even of the suffering that Satan stirs. He puts limits around our suffering. Do you know why I'm trying right now to preach through the book of Revelation? Is because I think we all need a worldview that can handle suffering. What is your worldview on suffering? Like, is it meaningless? It doesn't look meaningless here, does it? It looks like exactly like Jesus is controlling it. He's using it. I mean, the last thing you need is for somebody to tell you things are not that bad because they are that bad. <laughs> and you don't need anybody to tell you, we don't understand why bad things happen. Yes, we do. It's right here. Satan stirs a lot of stuff to bring harm into our lives. God allows it for a test. It, it's useful in cleansing us. It's useful in drawing us to God. It's useful in God demonstrating over his opponent, Satan, that he is able to get his people home. It's not meaningless. If there was ever a Christian in church history that believed that God was over his suffering, it was the, the bishop, the pastor of this church in Smyrna, Polycarp. He lived 50 years after this letter was written. Persecution still going on. 
Polycar, I mean, Smyrna was famous for the Olympic Games or Olympic type games. And so during one of the festivals, when all of the people gathered for, an athlete, for the, an, the athletic event that was occurring, as is sometimes the case with athletic events, crowds are in a frenzy. And so they begin, started circulating, bring the leader of the church into the arena and kill him for sport. So the police went out to find Polycarp. Polycarp was told they were coming. He could have fled. He didn't. When they walked into his, his cottage where he was staying, he said, I have two requests of you. Could I, pre- could I prepare a meal for you? What would you like to eat? Could I prepare a drink? What would you like to drink? And he did. And he said, I need to do that for you because before you take me, I need to go pray for an hour. So they ate and drank and he prayed. He was such a lovely man, the police didn't want to take him, but they were under the instructions of the government. They took him before the magistrate in the arena. And the magistrate said, remember Polycarp was 86 years old at this time. Have respect for your age, old man. Curse Christ. Show your loyalty to Caesar and you can live. Polycarp's reply, 80 and six years I have, I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Then the proconsul said, well, if you will not change your mind, then I will throw you to wild beast in the arena. And Polycarp replied, to change my mind. He said, repenting from better to worse is not something that's permitted for a believer. Bring on the beast. Seeing his stubbornness, he said, well, then I'm going to not uh, throw you to the beast. I'm going to burn you at the stake. And this is where Polycarp knew his end was near because God had given him a dream that he would die by fire. Polycarp replied, you threaten me with the fire that burns for just a little while and is quickly quenched. You do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment. It is a fire of everlasting punishment. So Polycarp is now in the arena. The crowds are yelling for his death and they're gathering the wood. And right as they're about to tie him up, it was the custom of that day to also nail a victim's hands to the stake so he wouldn't move. Polycarp says, there is no need for nails. The God who has strengthened me to this point will strengthen me to stand at the fire and not move, which he did. So what was it that gave Polycarp the strength to endure? How about this promise? Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Smyrna was famous for its crowns. They worshiped a god, Sybil. All the coins made of Sybil. She had a crown on her head. If you were an athlete in Smyrna and you won an event, you got a crown. If you were a good, just a good civilian, a good citizen, and you performed a civic duty for the magistrate, you get a crown. Christians never got crowns. And Jesus says, I got a crown for you. 
a crown of life, a crown that when I place it on you and give it to you, you will experience life like you've never experienced in your your whole being and it's life that never ends. Isn't it interesting how Jesus Christ ends every promise to these churches with a promise of life that you've never encountered in, in all history? Life, uninterrupted joy, unending satisfaction. I'm going to give you that crown of life. And what's cool, I mean, last, remember last, last week, the church at Ephesus got, got to eat from the tree of life. Now this church gets a crown of life. And what's cool about this is how was Jesus able to give them what gave him the authority to give them a crown of life? Is because there was a day where he removed his crown and substituted it for a crown of thorns. There are two phrases for crowns in the Greek New Testament. One is diadem. That's the kind of crowns that kings wore. And then there's stephanos, the kind that an athlete would wear. Jesus traded his diadem crown, his kingly crown, for a crown of thorns when he was crucified so that he could die for our sins, rise from the grave, so that one day he could place on your head the Stephanos crown. And then there's one final word of comfort. I'll be quick with this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. No time to cover this much. Just you know if you want to read in advance, Revelation chapter 20 talks about a second death that some people in this world, many people in this world will encounter. The Bible says that those who are without Christ after they die will be raised again in order to experience a second death. A death in which they are separated forever and ever and ever from all the life and goodness of God. It is the worst part of Revelation to read about those who are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. You say, how can you avoid that? Well, you have to die twice now or you're going to die again. Matt Smethurst says it like this. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. What does that mean? If you come into this world, only birth you've ever experienced is from your mother. When you die, you'll experience the second death of Revelation 20. But if during this lifetime, you've come to the end of yourself and you've seen your sin and you've seen your selfishness and say, this old self, Jesus, I want it to die and I want the new life that you have to come into me. The Bible calls that being born again. And Jesus said, if you're born twice, the second death cannot hurt you. Born once, die twice. Born twice, only die once. The crown of life and the promise of life forever is waiting for those of you who would say, yes, I want to be today born again by Jesus Christ. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.